Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. So today, I, I, I feel like every colleague, uh, Kimberly and I have been bringing on during the pandemic has grown into uh, a colleague, more than a colleague, a friend, family, and so forth. And you know, the last two weeks, you got to hear us discuss that with a variety of people, um, Dr. Jackie Jennings to Dr. Golden. Today is no different. Um, <laughs> Dr. Dan, I, uh, I've known him since he was in training to continuing to uh, grow in this context of, the, of medical, medicine and academia, and I'm so excited that he's here today. Um, I call him a friend. I call him a dear friend, and I, I'm hoping you all can impre- uh, enjoy his humor as well. He's got some of the better jokes that I've heard from physicians, so hopefully he'll uh, grace us with that. And he'll talk about, of course, the heart, a very appropriate topic for today's theme. But before going into Dan, uh, Dr. Dan, we'll jump into the COVID numbers. After that, I'm going to still discuss the vaccine. I want to give you all one more piece of talking points for yourself, maybe for your community, to hopefully continue building the trust around the vaccine. Um, yesterday, for instance, uh, uh, Mr. Selwyn Ray and I talked with a local business uh, with a lot of their employees out of Baltimore City, and they, of course, rightly so, were hesitant about the vaccine. And when I say rightly so, I just mean in the context of medicine, people want to feel secure when they make a decision. And oftentimes, people just need more information that's digestible and understandable. So we'll give you one insight of how we approached it yesterday. So with that said, let's discuss the numbers, keeping us grounded, and with these numbers to reaffirm that you all, taking these health messages to your families, to your communities, to your neighbors, to your organization, you can help promote health and prevent disease, and thereby being our frontline individuals. Individuals like Dr. Dan and Dr. G were your last line of defense. If you're sick with COVID, it's a different conversation. So where are we globally? <sighs> well, these numbers continue to climb. So around the world, we are at 105,535,507 cases. Deaths around the world, we are at 2,297,183. Giving us a mortality rate of 2.2%. Here in the US, we have 27,277,461 cases with deaths at 467,069, giving us a mortality rate of about 1.7%. My suspicion before the end of this month will likely cross another dreaded. Uh, uh, mark of uh, crossing 500,000 deaths likely this month. And then finally, here in the state of Maryland, we have 360,584 deaths, I'm sorry, cases, cases with 7,109 deaths, giving us a mortality rate of 2%. Now, yesterday, and I know we spent, you know, this is now the third week of having a conversation around the vaccine, which I think is important. And one thing that I do want to emphasize about the vaccine, right, it is every vaccine that gets created, 
its intention is to always prevent disease. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to keep you from getting the virus, right? That's a different conversation, right? If you get a virus because of someone sneezing on you, right, so you inhale it, or a mosquito biting you and passed on through that. Vaccines are meant that if you get the infection, you have the ability to fight it off and therefore prevent disease. That's how vaccines always attempt to work. To stop transmission, that's going to take a lot. It can happen in a variety of ways, but for an airborne virus, it just means that enough people have the immunity, have the immune memory, to not get the disease. And why that's important is because that means that the virus gets in me. And it's like, whoa, this person has antibodies. It has immune cells to protect him. I'm going to jump somewhere else. And if it jumps to someone else who also has immunity, and they're like, no, no, you can't do your business here, the virus will at some point just pass away, right? A virus, like every other biological creature, needs to replicate in order for its purpose, for its existence to continue. And so if it can't find someone to do that replicating in, because we have immunity, then it can't do anything. So to gain the ability to stop transmission can only happen if enough people have been vaccinated. But until then, the vaccine's purpose is to prevent disease. And one, why that's important to recognize as well is for our listeners, I go into making an assumption that many of you are over the age of 18. Why that's important to note is when you're younger, in your young age, your immune system's pretty cool. It does a good job if something foreign comes in, a microbe, an infection, a virus, and so forth. Your immune system knows how to combat that. As you get older, your immune system really relies on its memory, its playbook that it's made throughout those years. New viruses, new infections will always be catastrophic to us to some level because our immune system needs to learn about it in real time. It doesn't do that as well as it did for you as a child. And that's what makes vaccines so awesome to some extent because you get that playbook without ever having to go through that disease. Now, one last thing I would like to say about the vaccine. So one of the concerns that many people have, and rightly so, rightly so, is, uh, I, you know, it, it came so quick. Did a lot of people get the virus, uh, vaccine? Like, you know, a lot of concerns, a lot of concerns. And I understand. I understand. And what we've been emphasizing through these calls is, well, this vaccine took 17 years in the making, a little bit of tweaking for SARS-CoV in 2003, a little bit of tweaking for MERS-CoV, and a little bit more tweaking for SARS-CoV-2 in 2020 and 21. Right, that little bit of tweaking, a lot of it is because those coronaviruses, that spike protein that we target with the vaccine, stays pretty consistent. So thank goodness we had data to go back in. But this is the part that I'd love to emphasize. On these calls, we've brought up other interventions for COVID-19, really interventions meant to see if we can save people's lives. We've talked about that antibody, the monoclonal antibody that our former president received. We've talked about things like remdesivir, and steroids. Now, why I'm bringing them up is the most well-researched intervention for COVID-19 that, through the standards of, has recruited the most patients in the world is actually the vaccine. The monoclonal antibody, 400 people were recruited for that. 400. 400. That's it. Remdesivir that we give out in the intensive care units, a little over 1,000 patients. On a medication, that's relatively new. Right? We've never really used remdesivir before, and we're giving it to 
almost every patient who walks into our intensive care unit. Same thing with the steroids. Though steroids have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, we just never really used them to help us fight a disease like COVID-19. So I bring all this up because the most well-researched thing to date that we have in the sense of recruiting many patients has been the vaccine. 120,000 people have been recruited for three vaccines. Johnson & Johnson, a little over 40,000. Moderna, over 40,000. And um, uh, Pfizer, over 40,000. And all those patients were followed for a minimum of three months and the six-month data will come up. Compare that to your steroids, the severe and the antibody, the monoclonal antibody. We follow them for a week. We follow them for 28 days. That's it. That's your time frame. So if you want to feel confidence in the vaccine, I would say from a science standpoint, a medical standpoint, this is the most well-researched product we have that's recruited a little over, the, close to the population of Baltimore County, or if not a little bit more, and have they been monitored for over three months now, closing on the six-month mark. And the technology and insight of over 17 years. So that gives me the confidence there that I can trust this. So I'm hoping you all enjoy that scientific angle to approach yourselves or your loved ones to feel more confident in this. If you want to receive the most well-researched COVID-19 intervention to date, it actually is the vaccine. So with that said, I am a lung doctor, and I highly think the lungs are the most amazing organ in the chest. However, I oftentimes come across people who tend to disagree with me. But it's fine. It's polite and professional. So, Ms. Kimberly Munson, do you want to introduce our guest who is here to talk about the heart, all things related to the heart and COVID? Yes, I certainly will. Thank you, Dr. G. So I would like to reintroduce our today's guest speaker, Dr. Dan Ambinder, who we had, um, early, I guess maybe it was uh, late in the year last year, um, who is a cardiology fellow at Johns Hopkins Medicine. So welcome back, Dr. Ambinder, and good morning. Thank you for joining us again. Well, hello, hello, hello. Thanks for having me again. I've been looking forward uh, since the last time we, we chatted. It was great. great thanks, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so before we begin, uh, would you share a little bit about your background and, and your particular interest? Absolutely. So I am a cardiologist. Uh, I work at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. I am particularly focused on coronary artery disease, which is the people that take care of, well, which is like heart attacks and things like that nature. So I'm doing what's called an interventional cardiology fellowship at the moment, where I'm training to basically put in stents and balloons to help people get through their acute heart attacks if needed. And next year, I'll be doing more training in how to put in heart valves into patients that need them for really tight valves or leaky valves. And I'm also a co-founder of a podcast called Cardioners, where we basically explore cardiovascular education, and we make it free for everybody who wants to listen. So you're all welcome to listen. Um, in particular, we are very excited because we're just partnering with um, Women's Heart, which is a phenomenal organization that basically focuses on advocacy for women and heart disease. And we're going to be having on special, we're going to be doing a special episode with people who have lived through heart disease or are currently living through heart disease and have a story to tell and a mission 
um, to accomplish. Uh, and so stay tuned for that kind of stuff. And that's kind of a little bit about me. Awesome. Thank you so much. So um, before we get into the COVID and the heart, I always like to kind of start with the basics. So what exactly is cardiovascular disease, and is it the same thing as heart disease? That's a great question. So cardiovascular disease is all-encompassing. So our heart, oh, and I should caveat that I do love the lungs as well because we're all one system and we're all one person, uh, and we're all many people comprised of wonderful organs, and they all need to work well together so that, you know, we can continue living in a healthy way. So let me preface no, that. No, no worries, Dr. Dan. No worries. <laughs> I get it. I get it, my friend. All right. Back to you. Sorry. Very good, very good. Um, okay, so cardiac is another word for heart. So heart disease and cardiac disease would be the same thing. Cardiology is the study of the heart, and particularly heart disease, and treating patients with heart disease. But we know that the heart is a pump that pumps blood to the rest of the body, and that blood carries nutri uh, you know, oxygen and really essential nutri uh, nutrients, and it also clears all the waste products. And so the heart itself alone is not enough. It needs to have blood vessels that supply all of these nutrients. And, again, it's kind of like the road infrastructure in the body to take things to and from the other tissues and organs. So to broaden the term, we say cardiovascular, which means heart and blood vessels. And so that's what cardiovascular diseases are. They are the diseases of heart and the blood vessels that are associated with those hearts. So what are some of the main types of cardiovascular disease and what is the most common, particularly between men and women? That sounds great. Uh, okay, so the most, so, so the, heart act, the heart is really comprised of a few different parts. One, it's a pump. So it needs to squeeze, and when it squeezes, it creates pressure that helps blood flow. Number two, it also has valves, so that when it squeezes, blood goes in one direction. And number three is it all has to be coordinated, and so it's done so through electricity. So there's electrical impulses that are in the heart that control it so that it beats together in a way that's kind of organized, like an orchestra, so that it could create that squeeze. So it's a pump, it also has valves, and it's got electrical aspects of it. The number one problem within, you know, in heart disease is pump function, where basically the pump is not working as well. And the reason why that is not working as well is, in general, number one cause of it is heart attack. So over time, if blood vessels that are supplying blood to the heart get compromised, they get blocked, they get filled up with cholesterol and kind of clot off, that creates a heart attack acutely. And if it happens over time, that may not necessarily present as a heart attack, but either way, it may cause decreased heart function and the pump function, and that can lead to heart failure. So that is the most, no that is the most prominent feature that we see patients coming in either with acute heart attacks or later down the road, they come in with heart failure 
which is, you know, swelling of the feet, shortness of breath, and that kind of thing. And both are very common in men and women. Cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of illness in the nation. And, you know, originally, traditionally, heart attacks and heart failure was thought to be a male, you know, a, a, a male issue. But over the last several decades, that has been really disproven. And women also have the same amount of risk or even more, especially when they get postmenopausal for heart attacks and heart failure. And so we really need to, you know, broaden our thinking and make sure that we address both men and women with these symptoms. And women tend to present a little differently than men. So they may have similar entities, but at the same time, they may not have that classical chest pain that we may think of. They may have weird tingling or throat burning or even, you know, mild shortness of breath or nausea or just different symptoms than that classical, you know, chest pain where somebody clutches their chest while they're mowing the lawn kind of thing. And so we have to be aware of that and take symptoms of heart attack and heart disease very seriously for both men and women. Thank you, Dr. Ann Binder. And actually, you kind of already um, kind of just addressed my next question, but are there any other warning signs that we should look out for um, for uh, a potential um, heart disease? Absolutely. So from heart attacks, it's generally speaking shortness of breath or chest pain that occurs sudden onset abruptly. And I want you all to you know, appreciate that if doing a little bit of exertion, such as like walking across the room or going up a flight of steps, makes that shortness of breath or chest pressure worse or any other associated thing, makes nausea or sweating worse in an acute way that's not normal, those are things that should trigger, you know, trigger one to say, I should probably seek medical attention immediately or very, very, very quickly. And um, from a heart failure perspective, the presentations of those is you get fluid in your legs, so you get edema or swelling in your legs, you get shortness of breath, and those things can happen, you know, acutely over a couple days or even a day or two, but it could also be occurring over several months and may be difficult to note. So sometimes, you know, I'll see a patient um, six months ago and they were feeling great, and now six months later, and they still say they're feeling great, and I ask them, hey, does, has anything changed? And they may say, eh, not really. And then I'll examine their feet, and I'll be like, wow, they have a lot of swelling. And they, the patient may not have even, like, recognized that because it happens so slowly over so much time. And so that could happen. So, so those are things we think about. Weight gain, if it's basically occurring over a couple days, and that's for sure associated with, you know, Short, uh, swelling of the leg, shortness of breath, maybe abdominal bloating. Those are symptoms and signs of heart failure. Now, um, as, as we all know, those symptoms could be caused by many other things. So we don't want to just focus, it, focus and fixate on heart failure symptoms, but at least any change in health should be addressed. And you, the, ru the usual rule of thumb is the faster a change occurs, the more emergent it is. So if you're getting leg swelling that has been occurring over three months, then you should get medical attention, maybe call your primary care doctor or if you have a cardiologist or cardiologist and start to discuss it, but it, you wouldn't have to come in necessarily to the emergency room. On the other hand, if that happened over two days, that would be something that you would 
definitely you could call your primary care and call your cardiologist, but you should be considering very strongly going to the emergency room for more of an acute or rapid evaluation because things that happen quickly in medicine tend to be more severe or at least uh, need to be addressed really quickly. Awesome. Thank you. So can you tell us who is most is at most risk for heart disease? Uh, definitely. So, you know, there are traditional risk factors that, cre that basically make certain individuals more at risk than others for heart disease. And we like to divide those into two different kinds of risk factors. Kind one is the type of risk factors that you can do something about. And type two risk factors are things that you cannot do anything about. You're given those cards. So type one, which the reason why I'm listing that first is because the things that we can do something about are the most important things because we should address them. So smoking is a big risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Uncontrolled diabetes is something as well. Uncontrolled blood pressure, even though you're, you don't feel like you have uncontrolled blood pressure, you may not have symptoms associated with really high blood pressure, but it's still basically silently chipping away at the cardiovascular system. So those are kind of things that we really want to get in control. A healthy diet as well. Exercise are all good things. So, you know, basically, if you thought uh, somebody with uncontrolled blood pressure, uncontrolled diabetes, that smoke, that doesn't do anything uh, within terms of exercise is going to be at a very high risk for developing cardiovascular disease. But getting those things under control can really, really do a, a great service to the patient's health or the person's health. The other kinds of risk factors that we can't really control are things like age. The older you are, the more likely you are to have a heart attack or heart disease. Um, genetics. So, for example, if somebody's family is full of people who have had heart attacks, you know, their father may have had bypass surgery when they were 50 and their mother had a heart attack when, and got a stent when she was uh, 62 and a brother already had bypass surgery, that is, a, that is most likely going to confer a higher risk to the individual that we're talking about. But obviously you can't change your genes. But what you could change is those other, you know, risk factors that we just talked about and aggressively get control of those, and that will also have a great impact on the patient. And so those are the kinds of risk factors that, you, uh, that we could think of in terms of cardiovascular risk. There are others, such as, like, um, having inflammatory disorders. So, for example, people with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, um, those are also you know, risk factors for cardiovascular disease as well as having HIV. But again, having control of those conditions does have a positive impact for the patient in terms of risk. So um, as we kind of end this particular section, can I ask one quick question? So, uh, and, and uh, Dr. Dan, I know you'll probably jump into this with a COVID conversation, um, but early on in this uh, early on in this pandemic, a lot of, at least for my cardiology colleagues, I saw some interesting writing about certain blood pressure medications 
that, um, you know, people just theoretically were like, should these be concerned for COVID? Um, and these are blood pressure medications that are pretty common, uh, I think known as ACE inhibitors like lisinopril. So uh, a good way, hopefully this pivots, Kimberly, I apologize, but any updates on blood pressure medication and potential impact on COVID, unrelated, related, and any, uh, what would you say to that? Um, so basically, yeah, we, and we sort of did talk about this last time. There was uh, evidence, there, well, there was, there was not necessarily clinical evidence, but there was a clinical concern that potentially taking certain blood pressure medicines like Lostartan, um, which is an ACE inhibitor, or angiotensin receptor blockers, which are, we call them ARBs, you know, from one friend to another, uh, could potentially worsen COVID infections or, uh, you know, increase the spread. That, for the most part, has been, I wouldn't necessarily say debunked, but really has not been found to be true. But what has been found to be true is that patients that are taking the medicines that have been proven to improve their lifespan and mortality should continue taking those medications because they're so effective for those other particular things that they have before COVID, like blood pressure issues, heart failure issues, heart attacks, and so forth, that the general recommendation by all of the societies is to continue taking the medications as prescribed. And that was the, the risk of basically getting COVID from these hypothetical or questionable um, data that wasn't necessarily clinically based but was molecular based is outweighed by the benefits of these medications for those diseases. And the information that continues to come is that there, there was a balancing act. So potentially a certain medication or agent may have been thought to make COVID worse, but there were other effects of those medications that actually would make COVID better and, uh, in terms of for the patient. And so, you know, it was not necessarily clear that just by finding one pathway of how a medication could be harmful may actually be outweighed by another pathway where the medication could be helpful, even when thinking about COVID itself. And so the general gist is guidelines is generally suggesting that everybody continue taking the current medications that they are prescribed for their underlying cardiovascular disease. And being in, sh in, in tip-top shape with your cardiovascular disease is the best thing to do when it comes to um, helping oneself, besides for obviously hand-washing and social distancing and masking, when it comes to COVID um, infection and protecting oneself. No, I, I love that answer, Dr. Dan. I think it emphasizes clearly that science is complicated. And um, uh, well said, well said. So uh, to our listeners out there, please, um, uh, one of the things that I take away from uh, Dr. Dean's conversation is continue medications as prescribed by your healthcare professional, but always ask them as well uh, to continue individualizing your care um, as to what is best. So Dr. Dean, thank you. Uh, Kimberly, back over to you. I apologize. I know I jumped the gun into a little bit more COVID conversation. No worries. Thank you. Um, so, Dr. Ambiner, just to kind of close the conversation and generally speaking with um, the heart disease, you had already mentioned some things that we cannot change, such as age and, and genetics, but we, you know, we could uh, quit smoking or exercise. Is there anything else that we could do um, to help prevent um, heart disease or a better management? That, that is an incredibly valuable uh, question. So. We didn't even talk about this yet, but I guess this is a good time to talk about it. 
there's a whole area within cardiology called preventative cardiology. And that is basically a field dedicated to trying to make sure that disease doesn't even come up in the first place. So, for an example, if somebody has a heart attack, we obviously realize that this patient is at higher risk for another heart attack. So even if we fix the blocked artery, we put in a stent, and there's great flow, and the patient feels amazing, they're giving you high fives the next day, we know and the patient knows that the, the job isn't done. And there's a very big emphasis to create a situation where the patient is safer going forward. And usually that basically always will come back to what we talked about with our reduction of risk factors that are modifiable, meaning that we could change. So if the patient smokes, we encourage smoking cessation. If, we, if the patient didn't really exercise, then we encourage exercise, usually guided by cardiac rehab, which is something that we offer to patients after heart attacks, and so on and so forth. If there are inflammatory disorders that are not under control, we try to get them under control. But there are patients, but we actually would rather not treat heart attacks. We'd rather prevent the heart attacks from occurring in the first place. So the same principle always applies. You have to reduce risk factors, as we talked about um, already. That's going to be the same cornerstone principle. But then there is another element of this, and that's basically to decide how high risk a patient is. Because the higher the risk of the patient before they even had a heart attack, the more valuable an intervention would be to reduce the risk of having a heart attack. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So say you have a 25-year-old person who's athletic and exercising and is at the gym and doing great and no underlying cardiovascular disease that we know of. And their family history is pristine. Grandma, grandpa from both sides lived to their 90s and the parents are totally healthy, go through their doctors regularly for regular checkups, but it's really a discussion and, you know, just a high and by and a good physical exam. That person is going to be at a very low risk. So to start them on medications to reduce their risk even further, such as, let's say, aspirin, a baby aspirin, or a medication like atorvastatin or statin, is not really going to give them any benefit but every medicine comes with side effects. So they're only going to get side effects. So for this particular patient that we have determined has really, really, really low risk, we should probably not do anything else but encourage the risk factor modifications that we had said, that we, you know, don't start smoking, keep exercising, make sure you don't have diabetes, et cetera. On the other hand, if you have a patient who's older now, they're in their 60s. And their heart, their, you know, their family is riddled with heart and strokes. You know, mom had bypass, dad had a stent, uh, their uncle just had a stroke, their brother just got admitted with heart failure. You know, that person is going to be at a higher risk. They, you know, say they, they smoke, but even now they quit and their blood pressure, they had problems, but now they've got that under control. They've adjusted all of their modifiable risk factors already. And they're asking you, like, I don't want to have a heart attack. Can I reduce the risk even further? That patient will probably have a higher level of risk, and there are calculators to help us figure this out and other things as well, other tools. And so this patient would probably benefit from being started on daily aspirin and a statin. And this is a nuanced discussion that has to be personalized, and you have to have that discussion with 
your um, cardiologist, your primary care doctor, or your lung doctor, whoever um, is, feels comfortable just having these discussions. And being put on certain medications will reduce risk and hopefully prevent cardiovascular disease from even developing. So those are, you know, two ends of the spectrum. Where it gets even more nuanced is somebody who's kind of has some risk factors but is not that old and there are discussions and decisions, uh, decision aid tools that we can use and some further tests to kind of help us determine if this patient is high enough risk that they would benefit from being started on medicines that would outweigh the side effects or the potential side effects or, you know, negative uh, reactions from these medicines. And that's kind of how that works. So to summarize what I've said, basically, you got to always focus on risk factor modification when you can, no matter what age. You could be 10 years old or you could be 90 years old, and you could have no risk or you could have high risk. So that's a cornerstone of prevention. But then there's also risk calculation to figure out how high is somebody's risk and treat that accordingly. High-risk patients would probably benefit from additional medications that would reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. Low-risk patients, less so, and middle-of-the-road patients, more of a nuanced discussion with extra tools that we have in our toolkit to help guide the patient or advise the patient, with the patient being the captain of the ship and, you know, taking ownership of their own health, of course, is the most important thing. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so let's... Um with the last uh, maybe uh, five to ten minutes that we could talk about the heart and COVID, does heart disease increase the risk of um, having more severe symptoms of COVID? So to answer this question, basically we have to appreciate that patients with cardiovascular disease that already started have less wiggle room to adjust to different perturbations to the system from other things. So for an example, if a patient has heart failure and their pump function is really weak, right? Before COVID, they got themselves under control. They've taken their diuretic pills, their fluid pills, so they don't have a lot of fluid on board. They've been exercising and basically do what they do normally. Um, and so they'll you know, go up like the stairs and even though their pump function is weak, right? but they can really, that it's strong enough to get them through what they want to do and maybe even sometimes exercise, right? So at their baseline, they're doing okay because they're optimized on their medical management and they've optimized themselves on the risk factors and things like that. Enter something like COVID. COVID is a virus that we're learning about more and more, and I'm sure you've uh, listened to these calls and you learned uh, how the virus interacts with our body, our tissues, our lungs, our blood system, and creates a situation where even at rest, even a patient in the bed requires way more pump function. If somebody has a normal pump, they'll be fine because, you know, just like we can, you know, have a normal pump and be lying in bed, but then, you know, swim and, you know, run a marathon and the pump basically is able to accommodate for that by pumping harder and faster and squeezing. Somebody with a weak pump may not have that ability. And so they will not be able to meet the demands that the body is asking of them in the setting of an infection, like any infection, but particularly COVID, which could be a pretty severe infection. 
And so that is one of the ways that having pre-existing cardiovascular conditions could make it more challenging for the body to get through a COVID infection when that happens. And I use pump function as an example, but this really, uh, you know, it could, it could be, you know, uh, extrapolated to many other cardiovascular disease symptoms. So that, I, I hope that answers your question. Yes, thank you. Um, so ACE inhibitors in ARBs, first, could you just kind of explain what they are um, to the audience, but are they harmful or helpful? I think it's great that we're bringing this up again so we can reiterate. AR, okay, so, um, so ACE inhibitors and ARBs are from a family of blood pressure medicines. Those blood pressure, they're, they're very effective. So, it, you know, ACE inhibitors in that family, they tend to end with pril, like sinopril is an example of, you know, uh, an ACE inhibitor. And ARBs tend to end with TAN, like Lasartan. They're cousins and they're related. They are really good at reducing blood pressure. But it turned out that they are also phenomenal at helping patients live longer with heart failure. And it also turns out that patients that have recent heart attacks, their heart is healing. And that healing could go in a good way or it can go in a bad way. And these medicines are also very helpful and effective of making the heart remodel better. We call that positive remodeling. So that when the heart has to fix itself, it fixes itself in a very good way. All this to say is that these blood pressure medicines turned out to be very, very helpful in other aspects of health, of cardiovascular health. health. Um, and so this is what we talked about earlier. The COVID basically, the way, you know, as you guys know, there's a spike protein that kind of helps the COVID get into the body. Viruses can't just knock on our door and come in. They need to get into the cells. And so the spike protein is one of the, is the protein that helps them get into the body and it interacts with an ACE inhibitor receptor. Sorry, an ACE receptor. And so there was, there was a question initially about this particular interaction that may be having, because, you know, if you block ACE inhibitors, then you get more receptors. And if you get more receptors, then potentially you have more access for COVID to get into the body. So there was that kind of thought process initially. And very early on in COVID, it was a question of whether or not we should be taking ACE inhibitors, you know, or stopping ACE inhibitors. But like I said, just like the medicine were meant to be blood pressure medicines that had many, many other wonderful life-saving effects on other organs, so too their interaction with the COVID is quite, you know, uh, widespread. And it, you can't just look at one particular interaction to see if there's going to be an overall benefit of it. And so, therefore, the general consensus is take, continue taking these medications, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, particularly when your, uh, you and your physician thought that this was the right therapy for you to begin with. But like um, we said earlier, you know, always ask. You know, there's no, doesn't harm, there's no harm in asking your provider if this is the best medicine, should I be switching to another one? For blood pressure, it may not make a difference because in blood pressure, we really just want your blood pressure to be lowered. So you could do it with an ACE inhibitor. You could do it with a calcium channel blocker, like a medicine like amlodipine. There's many different medicines out. So if you're particularly bothered about, 
you know, should I be on an ACE inhibitor when I could be on a different medicine, that's, uh, you know, something to discuss. But for heart failure, you know, so if somebody has high blood pressure and heart failure, you have to rethink it. It's a bigger discussion because you can't just use certain blood pressure medicines um, and expect to get the same benefit with regards to heart failure. And so that's why it's a little bit more complicated. The benefits of ACE inhibitors and ARBs go up when patients have heart failure and other cardiovascular diseases besides for just blood pressure. It's, and also um, kidney disease is very helpful in kidney disease as well. So that's why it's uh, more of a nuanced discussion of whether to continue or not. But the punchline of the discussion is to continue. It's probably better to continue these medications than to stop it. Now, and uh, Dr. Diem, uh, I truly appreciate that. And, um, and there, there's a reason why we've asked this more than once is uh, it, it becomes a big topic in our community, so thank you for that. I, both explanations, both times were great, and I think you're really driving home the point to our listeners. You know, there's an incredible amount of benefit from these medications. At the end of the day, continue them at the guidance of your uh, physicians. Um, we will always keep people's health at their best interests. You know, so I, I, I truly appreciate that. Um, I have one last question, and then I know Kimberly has Absolutely. some community questions um, that they're aching to ask. My one question to you uh, is, it, it, so I'm one of the few faculty that run that post-COVID-19 clinic. And in our clinic, you know, these patients uh, continue to not have the quality of their life back. Significant morbidity continues. One of them has been cardiac complications. The one that has come up frequently, you know, because if we hear some concerns, we'll send them over to cardiology colleagues. And I've been just seeing kind of an, uh, an increase in, um, or not an increase, I've just been seeing some conversations around POTS, P-O-T-S. Do you have two seconds just to comment on that, uh, uh, Dr. Dan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I am particularly interested in this um, because I had, you know, uh, my daughter has a physical therapist, and the physical therapist uh, basically reached out to me. She had COVID back in March, and she had, you know, been basically been doing fine from the COVID perspective, but then basically ended up developing this weird phenomenon where she would do things that were like have mild exertional things like brushing her hair, combing her hair, maybe get walking up the stairs and her heart rate would go like bananas. And associated with that heart rate was really, really high, um, really, really, um, uh, sorry, intense shortness of breath. Now, if that occurs, you can't say that um, you got. You can't just dismiss that because sometimes patients will have underlying cardiovascular disease that makes them basically develop high heart rates with low exertion. So, for example, if somebody has heart failure and they're not really on the right medicines and maybe it's under-recognized, potentially low levels of exertion can cause high heart rates as a compensatory may way to achieve the pump function that they need to do that activity, so coming to hand. So this person had extensive testing. She had an echocardiogram that looked at her heart function. She had an electrical cardiogram and even a, a Holter monitor that was able to watch her electrical conduction so that it, she knew that it wasn't an arrhythmia, which means it wasn't an out-of-whack high heart rate from something abnormal, but it was a the body was making a fast heart rate in the normal way. And so when you come to that, you know, when you've ruled out all these underlying problems that can cause it, and now you're, you're left with this isolated symptom of high heart rates when you stand up, which is called 
postural orthostatic tachycardia. So postural, that means basically when you're like, it, it, that, that your symptoms depend on whether or not you're lying down or standing up. So if you stand up and you get basically what we call postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and that's POT, and your heart rate shoots up abnormally. So we expect our heart rate to go, go up a little bit. That's fine. But to be sustained and really, really fast when it's not necessary, the heart has normal function, but the patient is just standing, getting out of bed, and their heart rate goes really fast, and they may sense palpitations, which, you know, that heart something, or they may get shortness of breath. So, you know, that is basically an inappropriate response of the heart. And when we can't figure out why it's happening, we call that postural orthostatic tachycardia symptom. And the key here is that you can't figure out why else it's happening. So, for example, if somebody's very dehydrated, they can have the symptoms of the same, the same symptoms. There will be the same postural orthostatic tachycardia, but it wouldn't be the syndrome of it. So it wouldn't be POTS because they're dehydrated. So we would advise them to drink more fluid if it's appropriate for that patient. And then their symptoms should resolve. But let's say their symptoms do not resolve, then they have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So for this particular person that I was talking to, you know, she had everything checked out. She was very, she's, uh, you know, very athletic and had been exercising pre-COVID and even starting to do exercising post-COVID, and she was having these very, very abnormal um, symptoms. Why it's happening is really, uh, is, you know, it's, it, we are seeing these patients, again, and, and particularly in the post-COVID clinics, we are seeing these patients come with these symptoms, and uh, it's unclear exactly what is driving it. There are, you know, are several ways to think about it. So number one is our bodies are, like I said, an orchestra. Just like the cardiac system has an electrical orchestra that's basically saying, hey, you beat now, and you squeeze now, and you rest now, and now squeeze now. So to the body is basically a whole orchestra of the neural system, the brain system, right? So the brain speaks to the spine, which speaks to every part of our body. So, for example, if we want to raise our hand, you know, the brain sends a signal to the hand, and basically the signal is able to tell the muscles in the hand to contract, and our hand will raise. Well, COVID had, you know, basically has, potentially neurological effects that may linger and may prevent that organization to work well. And so that may be one of the causes for the high heart rate because our, just our brain system also controls our heart rate. So that may, can, may affect that. There are other things as well. COVID-19 is really, besides for a lung disease, is also a vascular phenomenon. And our blood vessels are not just pipes. They interact very normally. I'll give you an example. Uh, that, that you'll be familiar with, uh, with the lungs, like, for example, we, when you're standing up, right, and you t fill your lungs up with air, air will, more, or will actually have an easier time being at the top of our lungs rather than at the bottom of our lungs just by gravity. You know, air is, going, is, a, is a gas, so it's going to fill the tops of our lungs better than it fills the bottom of our lungs. But in the lungs are also blood vessels that are collecting the oxygen, right? And blood is more susceptible to gravity and will be at the lower, you know, blood flow will be more uh, robust at the lower parts of the lungs. So that is a dissociation that's not good. But the blood vessels in the lungs can kind of help us out and redirect, you know, there are muscles in the blood vessels so they can redirect the flow so that it matches better. So that blood flow and also, oh, did I, am I still on the call? Oh, no, sorry. So that blood oh, no, flow you're still and... Here. 
You're good. Okay, so that blood flow and the gas exchange could be more harmonious. Well, COVID could interrupt that blood vessel system such that it's not reactive to the right things. So you may have a dissociation between flow of blood and the gas that's coming into the lungs, and it may be inefficient. So gas may be more on top of the lungs, and blood flow will be more towards the bottom, and that will create a, a, a you know, uh, a symptom of real shortness of breath, right? And that may be also associated with a really high heart rate. So when you, you know, go from a lying down position to a standing up position where those blood vessels are very much needed to help redirect flow so that there's more of a matchup between the gas exchange and the blood flow, there may be another way that you have this mismatch in post-COVID patients that kind of like exists even though the lungs have gotten better. The lungs themselves have gotten better after COVID, and therefore the patients will have the same shortness of breath or dyspnea. And there are ways to address these things, um, but the best way to do it is to have a multiple disciplinary system where you're dealing with the lung doctors, the heart doctors, the regular, you know, primary doctors, the rehab doctors to figure out what exactly is causing our patients to have the symptoms and try to uh, address them in an individualized way. But I think there is, and uh, and Panagas, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. G, uh, you know, definitely uh, fill it. You know, you have way more experience within this realm. But there's a lot that we're learning and a lot that we're piecing together. And uh, COVID is is very humbling to us practitioners, but also to everybody. And but as we put our heads together and compare stories and compare notes, we can come up with you know very very helpful ways to address our patients. But I will add one last thing, you know, all of these syndromes that are basically post-COVID, you still want to make sure that there's no other underlying cardiovascular diseases, either pre-COVID or post-COVID, that's causing those symptoms. You first want to rule out imminently life-threatening things that are basically, you know, um, that uh, basically should be ruled out before you just address symptoms. Because you never want to miss something that's in Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, Dr. Ian, like, no, you, you've captured that incredibly well. And the fact that you made it personal as well, bringing up um, um, your daughter, like, I think the community incredibly appreciates that. Um, I know it's been one of the biggest questions we get from the community. Like, post-COVID, what do we see? What do we see? And POTS comes up pretty frequently. Kimberly and I were just kind of uh, uh, talking um, to ourselves, and we're like, we, we may just need a whole POTS conversation at some point, bringing you back just to have this conversation because – it's a big conversation piece out in the community for the patients who've survived. So I, we truly appreciate it, Dr. Dan. I, I promise I'm, uh, on that high note, I'll give you 10 seconds to say thank you to the community, and then we'll close it off. There's other community questions, Dr. Dan, so I will uh, be sending them to you because you clearly have a fan club. We'll make sure that you uh, can help us address these uh, other heart-related questions. So, Dan, any last uh, closing words? You get 10 seconds, my friend. Go for it. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, one last thing is actually, I, I, I said my daughter's physical therapist, but it's actually not a current active uh, physical therapist. So I just, uh, just to make sure that we wouldn't be able to identify this person. My oh, daughter has many, 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 many physical therapists. Um, uh, so, yeah, just closing remarks is, like, keep safe, stay healthy, you know, do, the, do what everybody is advising, mask up, social distance, and Get those modifiable risk factors under control because you can do it and it'll be very, very helpful for now and also post-COVID times as well. So that would be my Perfect. parting message.
Perfect. Thank you so much, Dan. And Kimberly, over to you to, uh, uh, for the uh, wrap-up. So, Dan, thank you again. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. Yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ann Binder. You shared a lot of wonderful information with us today. And, and thank you again for joining us again today. And uh, thank you again, Dr. G, as always, for um, your insight as well. And uh, for all of those who submitted your questions, thank you as always. Um, I apologize we don't have time to address on the call, but we will get an email response to you. So we will um, definitely um, get that to you, um, if not today, um, within the, the next couple of days. Um, before I hand the call over to um, Reverend Johnson, I just wanted, again, to be mindful of this special month, American Heart Month. Um, our country is celebrating the 57th year of American Heart Month. Um, if, just a little quick um, fact that President Lyndon Johnson who was among millions of people in our country who had heart attacks, issued the first proclamation in 1964. And then since then, presidents have annually declared February as American Heart Month. And today is National Wear Red Day as part of American Heart Association's Go Red for Women initiative to raise awareness and support the fight against heart disease. This year's theme is Heart to Heart, Why Losing One Woman is Too Many. Um, in particular, one in three women are diagnosed with heart disease annually. Um, so for more information, visit GoRedForWomen.org. And if this was a Zoom call, you would see that I was wearing a red sweater with some red in my pants and also a red mask. Um, and also, I just wanted to end. We didn't really um, mention this um, as far as uh, heart disease being preventable, but uh, living a healthy lifestyle, which also includes... Um, controlling our blood sugar and cholesterol, and, and eating a healthy diet. So I think, and I've mentioned this before, this would be a great topic discussed on our Monday community partner calls. Um, so uh, for those who's listening, I know there was a few questions about discussing a healthy diet related to heart disease. This is something that we will discuss on a future Monday call um, at 5 p.m. And again, please join us next Friday, February 12th at 11 a.m. for our next COVID-19 Communities Partners Call. So, Reverend Johnson, I apologize for a delay. I hope you're still with us, um, uh, leaving it to you to wrap up with our closing thoughts and prayer. Absolutely. Thank you so very much, Kimberly, and good morning to everyone, almost good afternoon. Um, and thank you, Dr. Daniel and uh, Dr. G. Uh, for the great information, as always, that you've shared with us today. So today, as Kimberly has stated, this is the beginning of uh, Healthy Heart Month, um, of course, in addition to being Black History Month. And so, But in continuing our recognition of Healthy Heart Day is what I'll call it, I want to start our closing prayer by sharing this statement from the Greek Orthodox Church of America. They say, the heart is a marvel. Theologically, it is the center of the human being, and where God is revealed, physically, it is the primary organ and catalyst of necessary processes throughout the anatomy. In most faith traditions, there is an emphasis on maintaining optimal physical health as well as optimal spiritual health and a recognition of the correlation between the two. The heart serves as an important physical and symbolic link as we understand the importance of our physical hearts in keeping our bodies strong and alive, as well as our spiritual hearts in keeping our spirits strong and alive. Isn't it interesting that 
uh, in many circles, meditation is one practice uh, that has been largely recognized as beneficial to both the physical heart and spiritual heart. And so in recognition of such, I invite you, if you will, to join me in a short moment of meditation. And so I invite you to find a relaxed posture. I invite you to bring your mind into this moment by concentrating on your breathing. I invite you to inhale deeply so that your abdomen is extended like a balloon. Now exhale slowly, bringing your abdomen in as a deflated balloon. Think of one word that is calming to you and utter that word as you exhale. Let's just do just a few of these. So you're inhaling deeply and exhaling peace. Inhaling and exhaling. I invite you to make this a daily routine as often as you desire and for as long a period as you desire. And by all means, guard both your physical heart and your spiritual heart by monitoring both your physical intake and your spiritual intake. And so let us pray, O oh God. Help us to guard our physical and spiritual heart, as well as to recognize you as keeper of both when we allow. Thank you, O oh God, who holds our hearts as sacred. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Johnson, and thank you again, everyone, for listening. Thank you for pa your patience. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Be well. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.